Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. So the Gospel according to John chapter 12, and we'll be reading from verse 1 through to verse 8. Let me just get this out. Verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Amen. The flowers wither and the the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, brethren, last week we began a new chapter in the gospel according to John chapter 12, the chapter that is before us. And we know the context. Jesus had departed from Bethany because of the persecution of the religious and the political leaders of the day. But now the time has come. He's fixed his gaze upon Jerusalem because his time has come to come back to this holy city, to come to the city. And on the day of the Passover, he will, he will lay down his, his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for his people. Now on his way back, we know that he's already gone to Jericho and now as he works his way back to Jerusalem, he passes by in a, to a place called Bethany. We've heard that name. Not long ago, Jesus raised a man who's in that text here called Lazarus. He raised him from the dead in a place called Bethany where he is, the town that is right here, right now. About a half hour stroll from Jerusalem over the Mount of of olives and and when he came a, a a feast or a supper was held for our lord in honor of our lord at a place called simon the leper's home last time i said i don't know who this man was but nonetheless as jesus and the disciples and and simon and lazarus were reclining at the table mary the sister of lazarus comes in and does something absolutely absolutely remarkable breaking the the flask of alabaster flask she comes in and she begins to pour out its ridiculously expensive nard upon the body of our savior nard is the gold standard in perfumes and ointment in this day and without any reservation without any thought she pours out the content upon the body of jesus every last drop 
Last week I said the narrative is, an, is actually recorded in, in three of the Gospels, Matthew and, and Mark, as well as here in John. And every one of those accounts testifies to the fullness or, or the totality of the, the, the precious ointment being poured out upon Jesus Christ, her Savior, in an act of incredible, incredible love. What was the response to this action? Well, we're told also it was one of indignation. Those who witnessed this act were outraged, though indignant at what they saw. They they perceived what she had done to be an appalling waste of money. This could have been sold and so many good things could have could have been accomplished with this with this money. So so they scolded Mary. Now last week I I concluded the sermon at around verse four. And admittedly, that's a very odd place to finish a sermon, I must admit. It's only halfway through this narrative, but I intend this afternoon to continue where I left off uh, last week and hopefully, by God's grace, get you through to the end of this short narrative in verse, verse 8. But if you remember last week, the burden that was on my heart to convey to you was to look beyond what your minds think. Because when we read the, the detail, sometimes we get lost in the thought that, wow, 300 denarii, a year's worth of wages, and, and, and Mary just pours that out with no reservation at the feet of Christ. And, and so we begin to do the calculations, what it is in, in today's days and standards, and, and think about what the disciples were saying. Was it a waste? Wasn't it a waste? Could this money be used to a better purpose? And so on and so forth. And we may be, be lost in the, in the detail and overlook, overlook the main point. And I wanted you last week to to just pause for a moment and and consider the heart of Mary, irrespective of where your mind goes uh, with this extravagant act of love. Just just consider the heart of Mary. How much did Jesus mean to Mary? How how much did she love Christ? What was the disposition of Mary's heart towards her Savior in that she was willingly, without any reservation, willingly and happily and joyfully brings her Prized possession, maybe the most expensive item, single item she had, I'm not sure. And to pour it out in fullness upon the body of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. How great is her love for Jesus? How great is her appreciation of, of our Lord? I don't know about you, but thinking that through is piercing. It's confronting. Because we must all ask ourselves a question. How much does Jesus mean to you? How much do I appreciate the Lord? What has he done for me? And what is my heart's disposition towards him for what he has done for a sinner like this who is so undeserving? And then one must put himself or herself in Mary's shoes and ask that question that I asked you last week. It is a piercing question. It is a confronting question. If you were there, would you do the same? Moving on from the action that took place in verse 3, we come to the response of those who were present in verse 4. I said last week, although the focal point of the Apostle John is Judas Iscariot, that is, that is his focal point here. When we consider the content of Matthew and Mark, we know that not only Judas was indignant, 
Not only Judas was, was angered by what he saw, but the other disciples were outraged as well at the waste that they saw. But John concentrates upon Judas's reaction only here in John chapter 12. And I believe it's because the Apostle John wishes to, to extract or, or contrast Judas and Mary, or Mary and, and Judas. And the text, it leads us into that direction. Look, look at verse 4. Verse 4 begins with, but Judas Iscariot. We've just been told what Mary has done in this lavish act of love towards the Savior. And then we're told in verse 4, but Judas Iscariot. The term but can be translated, but on the other hand. Mary being contrasted with, with Judas. Mary pours out a, a pound of very expensive ointment, nard, pure, unadulterated nard, at the, on the body of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we're told, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given, given to the poor? We see what Mary has done. And I said last week that our actions are always, always rooted in the heart. They're not out here. They're not superficial. Our actions are always rooted in the heart. And we're told what Mary has done. And now we're told what, what Judas is doing. And the contrast, I believe, the Apostle John is giving us between Mary and, and, and Judas is the contrast of a true believer of Christ. One who's had an encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ and apprehended him by faith and had the heart changed. Like the Old Testament says, their heart of flesh removed and given a heart of, uh, sorry, a heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh given and, and, and faith to see, a recognition of sin, a recognition of unworthiness, a recognition of brokenness and a recognition that only Jesus is the one who can remove me from this plight. Jesus is the remedy. And on the other hand, he's contrasting Judas. Frankly and plainly, a counterfeit follower of Christ. Judas, a fraud. The impression etched on the Apostle John's mind is unmistakable, I think. It jumps out of the text that is before us. Mary's loving actions rooted in her love, of, of, in her heart of love towards the Savior, although opposed by many, and I'll get to that a little later resulted in a home filled with the sweet aroma of this amazing fragrance called nard. That's what the Apostle John tells us. That's the impression. That's what's on his mind. Mary's actions and then the whole, and the whole room is filled with this incredible aroma, this wonderful sweet smell. And on the other hand, the impression that Judas's actions has left on the Apostle's mind and now he's trying to convey to his readers is this putrid stench of greed cloaked in a thin veneer of righteousness, so-called righteousness. So what does Judas do? Well, he opens his mouth. And in a word, he says, what about the poor? What a waste. What about the poor is Judas's response. Would not have these resources be better spent had we have sold the nard and given the proceeds to the poor? Mary, I mean, you could have shown your love for Christ. This is incredibly potent, pure nard. A few drops, a little, a few sprinkles on Jesus' body and, and, and the room would have been whiffing with the smell anyway. 
It's not exactly that they pour a whole pound of nard on every dead person who's anointing for, or anointed for burial. That's, that's not how it works. Mary, you could have given some of this nard and the rest could have been sold. After all, the commandment of God is for us to look after the poor, to consider the poor, to keep an open hand to the poor that is among you in the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 15. Jesus, why you taught us yourself back in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon of the Mount. Your teaching presupposed that the, that the Christian should, should automatically be concerned for the needy and the destitute among us. That's your teaching, Jesus. This is true religion. To care for the poor, to care for those who are underprivileged among us. James tells us that much. I'm only trying to obey Yahweh. Can you fault his thinking? Judas ticks all the right boxes. He's not actually speaking like a pagan here. He's actually opening his mouth and speaking like a, a, righteous, a righteous Israelite. Concerned for the destitute. Concerned for the needy. Right? Think of poor Mary right now. Having just expressed her deep gratitude and love and appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ, her Savior, in this radical act, only now to be met with this fierce, and it is fierce, opposition. Those who are opposing Mary are not riffraff on the streets. Those who are opposing Mary are not even the Sadducees or the chief priests or the scribes. They're not even the, the, the self-righteous Pharisees. No. No, no. Those who come in opposition to Mary are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Led by Judas Iscariot. And the opposing argument seems to be a reasonable argument. It seems to be a convincing argument. It has all the hallmarks of righteousness. What about the poor? I wouldn't blame Mary if in this moment her heart sank. Have I done something foolish? Was this a crazy thing I've done? A year's worth of income poured out just like that? Ever, ever done something thoughtful, thinking that it'll be met with a degree of, of joy and appreciation only to have it backfire in your face? It's pretty deflating. But I take it that thoughtful thing you did didn't cost you a year's worth of income. The rebuke doesn't come from nobodies. As I said earlier, Matthew and Mark make it very clear. It's the disciples that scorn her, as well as Judas. Sure, Judas was the main objector, but right now, no one suspects Judas of wrongdoing. Right, right now, the, the disciples, they trust Judas. Mary, she trusts Judas. He's a, he's a disciple, one of the twelve that is handpicked by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the opposition that Mary is actually experiencing right here, right now in our text, is weighty opposition. 
Beloved, I want to bring this point up only because I want you to know that opposition to spirit-filled, genuine faith will come. And it will come from the outside, but we expect it to come from the outside, from the world, from the enemy, from his minions. That is so expected. But I want you to know that it could also come from within. You need to be ready to expect it. Toe the line in the in modern, so-called, run-of-the-mill type Christianity. You know what I'm talking about, the safe religion. If you toe the line in, in that respect, walking with certain parameters around us, not too, not too cold, but, but don't be too hot for Christ either, and you'll fit right in. You'll be okay you'll, for the most part. You can still read your Bible. You can do that. You can come to church every now and then. You can even tell your friends that Jesus loves them. But to be overwhelmed by what Christ has done, to be broken in the Spirit as an undeserving sinner, showered by the mercy and the grace and the love of God in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has saved you from your sin and the the wrath of God to come. And exemplify as a result of the love that has been poured into your heart that overflows the love of God that we only love because He first loved us and and, and to live in, in a radical type of faith, a reckless abandon like we see here with Mary. Not only talking the talk, I'm willing to give up everything, but actually walking the walk, I've given up everything for Christ. And now you've left the safety of religion. Now you're on dangerous ground. And you will be met with fierce, fierce opposition from Judas's of the world, as I said, the world, the system of the world, the enemy and his minions, and you will sadly also even experience opposition from within. True believers. True believers like the disciples, hear this, who are yet to mature in their understanding of what such radical love and commitment to Jesus looks like. Because at the moment, they have it in their head. Lord, I will never deny you. I will lay down my life before I deny you. And when the day comes, nowhere to be seen. You don't have to read too many autobiographies, or biographies, I should say, of many missionaries to come across quite a few who had some of the greatest opposition from within the church to the work that the Lord has placed upon their heart. Right now, right now, Mary is confronted. And this is confronting. Right now, her faith is being tested by men she respects, men she loves, men she considers to be and are true followers of Christ, except for this one, Judas. She's second-guessing herself. Have I done something wrong? Well, there's no turning back now. She can't exactly scoop any of the the fragrance from from the floor. It's soaked it up or it's been put on her hair. The flask is broken. It's all gone. What pressure. This would be an emotional roller coaster for Mary at this point. When everyone seems to be against her with fierce opposition like this, how easy, beloved, how easy is it to capitulate? How easy is it in this moment with the pressure that is coming from men who she's respected to be more knowledgeable than her, more holy than her? How easy is it for her to crumble? Oh no, I've done something wrong. 
The weight of this reputable opposition has to be brought into the picture. Who am I to think that I'm right when, when all these godly men say that I'm wrong? This is where the rubber meets the road for Mary. This is the moment of truth for Mary. Listen, I don't know if doubt creeped in. We're not told. I don't know if she guessed, second guessed herself, second guessed her, herself or her, her action in, in a split second. I, I don't know. We're not told. But I know this much. I know that the way that Mary acted in the moment was not determined merely by what was taking place in that moment. The way Mary acted or reacted in that moment was not merely predicated or determined upon what was actually taking place in that moment, but rather it was rooted on what had, had taken place prior to that moment. Days, weeks, months, and even years. Because, beloved, beloved when one is pushed and opposed and experiences the tribulation and the trials of this world and feast tribulation, even what Mary is experiencing here right now, the true colors of the heart are revealed. There's no faking it in this moment. This is the real deal. Pushed against the wall. When everyone seems to be against you, this is when the, the content of the heart is revealed. This is when the state of the soul is exposed. This is when you know really what you're made out of. And what you're really made out of when it comes to, pertains to the spiritual realities and spiritual things, because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And what you're really made of, made out of, where your heart is and the state of your heart, it's not a matter of when I'm there, I'm just simply going to try my best. That's not it at all. The question is, what have you been doing, Mary? Brethren, what have we been doing in the last days and weeks and months and years with our lives? Have we been building our faith through Jesus Christ? Have we been spending time at the feet of Jesus Christ? Have we been meditating upon His Word, listening on His teaching, meditating upon His, His truths? Have we been consuming Jesus and growing in our faith in Him? Or have we been walking as though we can do it in our own strength? This is a war. This is a war. None of this is haphazard. Every day for you and I is a war out there. And even if we stay in our room and lock the doors, it's still a war. Because what lives in here is remnants of that beast called the flesh. It's a war. How many soldiers do you know go into battle without first preparing weeks and months of preparation before they're ready to go out into battle? What makes us think we can go into battle as we are and just, just take it as it comes? Everyone is against Mary. Everyone is against her at this point in time. At least the, apart from Christ, of course. And she thought she'd been doing something as an act of love, act of faith towards her Savior. And then she receives all this fierce, fierce opposition. And beloved, I have to tell you, and unless she had spent time in intimate communion with the Lord, 
Unless she was feeding upon his word and the word that he taught her as she sat on under his feet daily in her heart, continually meditating upon his truths, upon his, his love and his, and his mercy and, in, and on his grace upon her. Unless she was actively cultivating a love, a life of, of devotion towards the Lord. It is so easy to fall and break and crumble. Because faith is not strong in one day. Faith is strengthened over Time spent at the feet of our Lord. Time spent at the feet of our Lord. It's through intimate relationship with the author and the perfecter of our faith that our our faith is strengthened. Because when you spend intimate time at the feet of Christ, I tell you what happens. You learn a whole lot about yourself and you learn a whole lot about him. And it won't take long before you don't like what you see, but you love what you see in him. And it won't take long before you begin to declare with, the, with the, 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 the John the Baptist, that great prophet, I must decrease, but he must increase. Less of me and more of you. This is corruption. What's in here I don't like? Lord, cleanse me, clean me, make me like you. Conform me into the image of Jesus Christ. Because apart from you, Lord, and your work in me, this world will destroy me. I have no strength. How desperate are we for Christ? How much has our eyes been opened to the spiritual warfare that takes place in this world? We can answer with our mouths. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, by the practices of our lives. Because talk is cheap. If we truly believe it, do we live like it? Spending time at his feet to learn his ways, that his ways would be my ways, that his thoughts would be my thoughts. That his heart, that his heart would be my heart. And that requires time at his feet. For Mary, today, her faith will be tested. Judas, on the other hand, well, Judas, on the other hand, to use the words of our Lord himself, Judas was a devil. Verse 5 and 6, let me read them to you. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. What incredible insight the Apostle John gives us. Unbeknown to Mary at the time, Judas is a counterfeit. He's he's a fraud. He's a hypocrite. He he says things with his mouth. He opens his mouth, but there's no agreement between his mouth and his and his heart. He has no intention to carry carry these words out. His heart is far from God. It's all talk. All that talk about helping the the poor that he is here. It's just a facade. It's a facade for selfish, shameful gain. That's all it is. He's just thinking of his own cut. Doing his sums in his mind. Oh, if, if we were to sell that nut, how, how big would the money bag be? And, and how much can I take out and not get caught? How foolish, Judas. 
You can pull the wool over the eyes of many, even, even your close friends, the disciples, but God cannot be mocked. Now, for a moment now, it would be well worth us stepping back and just remembering that the author of the Gospel according to John, the Apostle John, the author himself didn't author this book for you know, four or, or five decades, 40 to 50 years after the events that are taking place before us here. And in the text, he reveals to us that, that, that Jesus or Judas was a thief. In fact, it's, it's not revealed anywhere else in Scripture. So this is unique here for the, for the gospel according to John. Otherwise, we wouldn't have known this about Judas. He helped himself, Judas did, to the money bag, the, the money that would be given for the expenses of Jesus' ministry. There was many that supported our Lord. And Judas loved to be the treasurer because being the treasurer, he was close to the money. And being close to the money, John tells us he used some of that money for personal gain. First time he dipped his hand into the money bag, I'm sure he would have been absolutely terrified. Maybe in a cold sweat, will I get caught? Will I get caught? What happens if I get caught? Chest would have been pounding out of his body and what if, what if I get caught? But he fudged the books and no one noticed. He got away with it. The second time was a little easier because it's always more difficult to pierce the conscience the first time. The second time was a bit easier and he got away with it again and then again and then again and, and again. And in real time, and here's the clinch, in the real time, uh, the Apostle John and the disciples, they had no idea. N- none, of them, none of them knew that Judas was a fraud. They trusted him. He was one of them. They loved him. He, he was partnered with them in the ministry. Jesus, Jesus would go with his disciples from town to town, and often he would send them out two by two, and, and, and they would go and minister. They would cast out demons in the name of Christ. Heal various diseases in the name of Christ. Proclaim the good news of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. All the while, all the while he was a fraud. And they didn't know. In fact, in fact, the night that Jesus is betrayed, Jesus has the twelve before him and he says, one of you, one of you will betray me. Eleven eyes didn't go towards Judas. We know it is. No. In fact, every one of them, the Bible says, one by one asked, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Such was the level of deception. Judas, you may think, got away with it. You may think you got away with it. But sin will find you out. When all is said and done, sin will find you out because Jesus knows all and Jesus sees all. On another tangent, think about this for a moment. How long was Judas with the Lord? He was with the Lord for over three years. I know some contest that it may be a little over two, but it seems more likely a little over three years. Three years! Three years sitting under the teachings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is the epitome of all good things. 
Three years under the teachings of Christ. Three years hearing from the words of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. The claims that He made. Three years being an eyewitness of the power of God in Jesus. Three years being an a eyewitness testimony of the, the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God that has been bestowed through His Son, Jesus Christ. Three, three years Often you've heard me marvel from this pulpit at the, at the level of rank unbelief in the religious leaders of the day who with their very eyes had seen the power of God in Christ Jesus and yet continue in unbelief and unbelief and unbelief and refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to fathom, but now spare a moment and think about Judas. Day and night with the Lord. And yet... Although being under the greatest teacher who ever lived, his heart remained unchanged and gripped by the love of money, greed. Gripped with idolatry. Gripped with sin. Salvation is of the Lord, beloved. No man will reason himself or herself into salvation, no matter how comprehensive, no matter how faithful, no matter how compelling the witness or the evidence is. The heart is dark. It is lifeless. It requires God to move. Apart from the power of God, there's no hope. You see, the disciples couldn't understand the extravagant love that Mary had for Jesus because of, because of lack of maturity. But they'll grow. They have an advocate in Christ Jesus. They will grow. The good shepherd will lead them and teach them. We know that for sure. But Judas couldn't understand the love that was exemplified and portrayed in this, in this extravagant act that Mary displayed. Not, not because he needed to mature, but because he had not ever experienced that love. We love, as I said earlier, because he first loved us. The nature of the love is known to us. Last week I said, I, I understand the love of Mary, but, but the depth is far greater than anything I've experienced. But I understand it. And may we pursue it in Christ Jesus. But, but, Judas, but Judas couldn't understand it because he hasn't tasted that love that comes through the forgiveness of sins. That love of God that surpasses all, all, all understanding that love was alien to Judas because he hadn't tasted forgiveness. He didn't belong to Christ. Christ was not his shepherd. His friends were ignorant, but Jesus, Jesus knows his sheep. Judas could give lip service, as we've seen, but it wasn't rooted in his heart. He, his heart was given total, in its totality to idolatry, we're told. That which money can buy, that's what appealed to Judas. So when Judas said, why not sell the nard and give to the poor? As I said earlier, his mouth spoke, but it was not in agreement with his heart. The characteristics of an unbeliever, they'll say much, but there's no root, there's no essence, there's no substance within. That substance is Christ. That substance is the power of the Spirit of God. That substance is a renewed heart. For Judas, he gives money to the poor. He wants to give money. It sounds like he's, 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 he's loving the poor. He's concerned for the poor. But that's just code 
forgive me money. His mouth speaks, but it's not consistent with the heart. Just like a little later, he will come and kiss Jesus on the cheek. An act of endearment, an act of love, but the fact is that is not a kiss of love, but a death kiss, because he hates him. The contrast is between Mary and a true disciple of of Jesus Christ, who's had eyes open, heart renewed, to Judas, a counterfeit. A sheep and a goat. Mary was convinced in her heart that Jesus is the treasure. That she could give up everything that she owned, even the most valuable thing that she owned in this material world, and that she could give it up and she would be no poorer for it. She had everything in Christ. That's the disposition of her heart. She had everything in Christ, satisfied in Him. Mary found what was satisfying to the soul and everything else was, was, was dimmed out. It meant nothing to her soul. She knew that she's rich in Jesus. But Judas, on the other hand, his heart was fixed upon the material things of this world. Jesus was merely a, merely a means to get more of what he stuff, or more stuff that his heart longed for. Judas was given over to the flesh. The flesh always wants more, beloved. The flesh is never, ever satisfied. It will go to crazy length to get what it wants and what it desires. And it loves the material things of this world and it's never satisfied. It has an insatiable hunger for what cannot satisfy the soul. I always want more. You know, these are the first words out of Judas's mouth here in John chapter 12. You know what he says next? The next time he opens his mouth, we're told in, the, in Matthew and in Mark, the time, next time he opens his mouth is actually right after this narrative. Right after this nar- narrative, Judas picks up, walks over the Mount of Olives and goes over to Jerusalem and he meets up with the chief priests. And you know what he says? This is what he says. He makes a meeting with the chief priests and then he opens his mouth and he says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What will you give me if I give him or deliver him over to you? Prepare to sell the Lord of glory, the author of life, for 30 pieces of silver. That is a heart that is embraced and captured and dominated by idolatry. A heart that is apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And here's the clincher. We were all like that at one stage. And if you're not in Christ, that's still you. Beloved, I said before and I'll say it again. The throne of man is never vacant. It is never vacant. Either Christ, the rightful king of king, occupies the throne. And when Jesus occupies the throne of your life and mine, he brings with him fulfillment and satisfaction for the soul. He brings with him everything the soul requires because all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies are found in the one who is Christ Jesus. All the promises of God are found in the one who is the yes and amen in Jesus. Or... If Christ is not in the rightful place of the throne of your life and mine or the life of others, then the other one who is on the throne is never vacant. It's always occupied and it's occupied by self. And let me tell you, when self occupies the throne, 
then the heart becomes an idol factory because self is captivated by the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And being captivated by the things of this world, knowing full well, you'll have an unsatiable desire for it. You want more and more and more. And the law of diminishing returns means that you may be satisfied for a day or two or a month or six, but after that you want more. You'll ever be longing for more and more. And the analogy I use all the time, it is a mirage. You get there and you realize there's nothing. And you go again and go again until time is up and you stand before judgment. What a terrifying reality for Judas. The Lord said of him, it would have been better if he had not have been born. Mary on the other side. Sorry, Mary on the one side and Judas on the other. What a difference. I said earlier that Mary's faith will be tested this day, and it was. Perhaps as she poured out the quantity of the, the Roman pound of nard in that alabaster flask, as she poured it out, perhaps... Perhaps listening to all this opposition and the indignation of the disciples and Judas, perhaps, perhaps she was tempted to stop. But she didn't stop. She continued to pour out. All three accounts of the Gospels are quite, excuse me, quite clear. She continued to pour out all the contents of the, the flask upon the Lord. Reckless abandon, despite the opposition. I, I said earlier how she reacts or acts in the moment, in the face of this difficulty, and this, and this opposition is not determined in the moment, but, but rather by the pattern of her life prior. Has, is her eyes upon Jesus Christ? Is she living by faith and not, and not by sight? Well, the answer is every time men, this Mary, and there's many Marys in the Bible, but every time this Mary is mentioned, and I've said this previously, you will always find in one of the accounts that she spends time at the feet of Jesus. She spends time at the feet of Jesus. She was possibly Jesus' best pupil. She treasured his words in her, in her heart. And I believe she did what she did, not only because she loved the Lord, but because in her heart she knew she knew that this would please him because she had a sense of the heart of her Savior. And that comes through intimate relationship with him. And she wasn't wrong. No, she wasn't wrong because when the others were scolding her, Jesus comes to her defense. Verse 7, leave her alone. Voice in the background, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What a relief to the heart of Mary. Okay, she, she may have known in her heart, and she did, I'm, I'm convinced of it, that she loved him, and she was convinced that this is the right thing to do because in her heart she wanted to, to show Christ how much she appreciated him, how much he meant to her. But how gracious is the confirmation also that comes from the lips of her Savior when he says, leave her alone. What a glorious Savior. What a gracious, gracious Savior. In Matthew, he, Jesus adds, or Matthew adds what Jesus said. He said that she has done a beautiful thing. Her actions are approved. 
So much so that what she had done on that day in Bethany, Jesus says, will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. It's inscripturated, right? Now, 2,000 years on, and we are talking about what Mary did at the feet of Christ in Bethany. Now, I want us to look at verse 7 and realize that the wording may seem to suggest that some of the ointment will be kept for a future date. It, it sounds, as we read, it sounds like Jesus is saying, no, he, she's keeping it for a future date. And some have said, no, she keep portion of what was poured for a future date. But that's not what is being said. As I said, for starters, all three accounts agree. Uh, the, the sense and the, and the trajectory of all the content in, the previ- in, in, the, in Matthew and Mark, as well as here in John, is that she poured out everything that day. This was a, a reckless abandon. This was a, an act of generosity that, that caused great indignation, not because she sprinkled a few drops, but rather because she broke the flask. No intention to reseal it. A flask, an alabaster flask, normally would have a hole on the top, as I said the other week, with a bit of wax on top. You peel back the wax. You sprinkle some and you put the wax back to seal it so it doesn't, what, what do they say, evaporate. No, 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 she didn't do that. She broke the top of the flask and poured the content. It's very clear. The words of our Lord could also be interpreted as you would have in your footnotes and suggest an alternative meaning. Not that Mary intended on keeping it for another six days or six or so days for the burial of our Lord that is to come, but rather her intention was that this flask, that this nard would be used for the burial, for for the anointing and the preparation of the body of Christ for his burial. And what she's acting upon now and what she's doing now, in fact, is preparing the body of Christ for his upcoming death and his burial. The time she spent at Jesus' feet is evident. Mary now knows her eyes have been opened. I think Jesus is commending her for it in his words. He says here, he says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. It seems to suggest that Jesus is saying it's not that Mary's doing more than she knows, but rather she knows what she's doing. And I approve. And that's glorious when you think about it because the the disciples who have been at Jesus' feet also day in and day out. How many times had our Lord told the disciples, I will be handed over by the scribes and the and the, and the chief priests, and, and I, will be, I will be crucified, and, and, and I'll be buried, and three days later I will rise from the dead. And when he says it to the disciples, they, they don't know what to say. Even at one point, Peter rebuked the Lord, get behind me, Satan, because he couldn't receive those words. But yet, yet it seems like Mary had heard them, and Mary had believed them, and Mary has acted upon them. She heard, she believed now she acts upon them. It's incredible faith. So much so that she was convinced of what she was doing, that she was prepared to give and pour out a year's worth of nard, expensive fragrance all upon the Lord to prepare him for what is to come, his death. Leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. What incredible words from the mouth of our Lord. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. These words are actually very loaded with meaning. And in closing, I'll be very brief to address them. 
the latter part of that statement, you will not always have me, is referring to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. There is a time right now where I'm among you, Jesus is saying. I'm now sitting with you. You see me physically. But not long from now, I will no longer be among you. He said it previously in John to the Pharisees, and he says that you'll search for me and you will not find me. In other words, you see me now, you can ask about me, and I'll be somewhere. But there is a time coming, and it's coming shortly, that I will no longer be among you. In fact, in less than a week, six days' time, to be precise, he will, he will willingly and voluntarily lay down his life as a substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice for the sins of his people. That's what Jesus has in mind in the latter part of this, in this statement. And the first part of the statement here where he says, the poor you'll always have among you, is, is, is of course true in its words of prophecy and we can carry them out till the end of the age, but, but these are words actually that are in Scripture. It seems to me that Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15. You see, Yahweh had covenanted with Israel in Deuteronomy. We, we know the story. It hasn't been that long since we worked our way through the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. The Lord had rescued the people from the land of Egypt, right? And he brought them over the, the, the Jordan, and, 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 and he was going to give them a land and an inheritance. But before he does that, through Moses, through Moses, he, he, he re... What's the word I'm using? Sorry, blank. He, he re... Yeah, reiterates the covenant. It's another word I have in mind, but it's not coming. Anyway, the Lord had covenanted with that people. And if you remember, the old covenant is a covenant that is predicated upon conditions. It's a covenant predicated upon if you obey my commands, if you obey my precepts. If that's, that's the covenant God made with, with his people. He gave them stipulations to obey. And he made clear back in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy that not only are there obedience mandatory and required in order for the blessings of the covenant to be poured out and not curses, how are they going to obey? Well, previously in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord makes them aware of how they will obey. The only way is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their might, and with all their soul. In essence, if the heart is, the disposition of the heart is not towards Yahweh in its totality, you have, no, you have no chance of obeying. So here the Lord is saying, Deuteronomy chapter 15, he, he begins in, in chapter 4, sorry, chapter 15 verse 4, he, he says uh, to, to the people of Israel, and he's saying that, that if, if you obey, there will be no poor among you. That's what he says, that there will be no poor among you. Because I will bless my people. I will be among you, I will be your God, and you'll be my people. There will be no poor among you. But the interesting thing is, only seven verses later, the Lord says something remarkable. He says, he says there will never be a time where the poor will cease to be among you. And, 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 and one it says the poor will, there will be no poor among you. And then seven verses later, the poor will never cease to be among you. Is that a contradiction? No, not at all. If you obey God that knows all, the people of Israel will fail to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength and mind. They will disobey. They will break the covenant. So what God says in only seven verses later is prophetically, you are going to disobey. 
And the poor will always be among you. will never cease to be among you, as Jesus says here. But you will always have the poor among you. They failed to love God. They failed to obey His commandments because their heart was rooted in the wrong stuff. No contradictions. Had they obeyed, God is the God who keeps His promises. But knowing their obstinate heart and continued disobedience, prophetically He tells them, the needy and the destitute will always be your land will be devoid of my full blessing. Why? Because you failed to love me with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. So let's bring that back to John chapter 12. At surface level, it may seem that it's because of the Marys of the world that the poor remain. Let me just explain that. If there was, if everyone like Mary, so willing to give up everything and pour it just like that, in reckless abandon at the feet of Jesus, would there be any resources left to give to the needy and the destitute? If everyone showed this lavish love and this extravagance of appreciation to the Lord, what would be left to give away to the poor? Again, at surface level, it, it may seem that it's the Judases of the world who will help eradicate poverty. Sure, he'll help himself to the purse. He may take 5%, 10 maybe 15 I don't think he could take more than that because, I mean, he'll get caught. You can fudge the books maybe 15 or 20%. If you're really brazen, maybe 25% before someone will notice. But the vast majority likely is going to be given to the poor just to keep his cover. So the poor end up getting something in Judas' scenario and get nothing in Mary's scenario at surface level. Be careful. It's not as it seems. Beloved, it is the loveless hearts of disobedience to the covenant of God that resulted in the consequence of the curse rather than the blessing. The poor remain in the land precisely because the people disobeyed, because the people did not love God with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their minds. It's not the Marys of the world, but it's the Judases of the world that are responsible for the reality for, for which Jesus, our Lord, says the poor will always have, you'll always have among you. It's the Judases of the world. It's a cause of man's disobedience, obedience, man's rebellion, the sin of man that came into the world that brought destruction with it. The fall of man brought corruption and poverty and other things. It's the fall of man that had done this. It's man's heart not looking to God in love for his goodness and his grace and, and to worship him as he deserves to be worshipped, but rather the heart of man that embraces the idols and seeks only that which gives him own pleasure, turning his back on the good and holy God, committing treason against the king of kings. That is the fall of man. And the consequence is that the whole of humanity and all of creation had plunged into darkness, into corruption, into brokenness. All that is wrong with this world, beloved, is a consequence of our sin. And love for God in Christ Jesus is the remedy 
It's the remedy. Now, when we step back and look at what Jesus is saying, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Please, please notice that Jesus is in no way diminishing the need to help the poor. In fact, he commands it. But when Jesus, what Jesus is saying is this, you'll have plenty of time to help the poor. The poor will always be among you. My people will always have a place in their heart to help those who are, who are destitute and needy among you. But right now, right now there is something far more important at play. R- right, right now, don't, don't think of what Mary's doing, uh, whether she could sell the, the content and, and give to the poor. Right now she's doing something far more important. Far more important. This extravagant love that Mary is displaying and and manifesting is attesting to something that is far more important. It's attesting to my death. What she is doing is she's preparing my body for burial. My body is being prepared for burial because in a few days time I'm not going to be among you. Because I'm going to willingly lay down my life for my people. And when my death is in the picture, everything else is secondary. Because you can give all the money in the world, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and it will not fix the sin problem. You'll feed stomachs and they will go to hell. All of humanity will go to hell with a full stomach. What have you done? Yes, We ought to have in our hearts a desire to help those who are underprivileged and those who are needy. In fact, if we don't have that within us, we should question the state of our soul. But what Jesus is saying right now is there's something bigger at play. There's something far more important at play. There's something that I'm accomplishing that Mary, in her faith and in her act of love, is attesting to, and it is my death, because through my death there will be redemption. Through my death upon that cross, my blood will be shed. You can, you can value that nard that Mary poured upon my body. And in fact, Judas has already valued it. It's one year's worth of wages. But let me tell you, you can never value the price for humanity that my death and my blood will bring upon it. Salvation for their souls because there is no other savior. There is no other remedy There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. There is only one Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it will require that he lay down his life. And Mary is attesting to it by faith. So you men who have accused and scolded this girl, learn. Learn from her. She's doing something remarkable. The poor, you'll always have among you. But you won't always have me. Not only in the physical sense, he's saying, but he's saying that I will lay down my life and then I will rise again and I will, I will ascend to the right hand of the Father. But I would have accomplished redemption for my people. And now, if you have placed your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Now, now as you look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, now embrace him by faith, walk in his light and allow him to work in and through you 
His love that is poured into you by his spirit will overflow and now the acts of good works will overflow and one of those things would be to help the needy and the poor among you. Now is the time. But not before you've embraced Christ by faith. Because if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. Listen, if you get the order wrong, you get everything wrong. First, faith in the one who laid down his life. First is to repent of our sins, to trust in the sacrifice, to trust in the blood and in, in, in the lamb that was, was hung upon that cross to, to bleed and die for my sake. To trust that he's the one who's atoned for my sin. To trust that he's the one who, who covers me in righteousness. And only then with my eyes fixed upon him am I, able, am I able to walk in his ways. You get that the other way around and think about helping the poor and other people. Hoping that somehow you earn favor with God and you get it all wrong and everything falls apart. There is no salvation in anything that you do or I do. There's salvation only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.